The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to Episode 7 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us today is a man you've read the writing of in Wizard, as well as on a pop culture websites like Newsarama and ComicBook.com. Please welcome Russ Burlingame. How you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Now, Russ, you and I have been known to communicate online about our shared love of the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie, which we will get to. Yeah, absolutely. Only through a recent interview with Zach Oat did I make the connection that you used to work at Wizard. So why don't you tell us a little bit how comics entered your life? What led you to actually be welcomed into the hallowed halls of the Wizard offices with your origin story? Absolutely. I feel like there was just never not comics around me because I I grew up in a house where my dad was running this like family owned local grocery store. And it wasn't our family. He was just managing it for a wealthy family. But as a result, like at the end of the month, when stuff would get stripped, like the covers stripped off and sent back to the publisher, he'd bring things home. And so there was just always comics in the house. And and I feel like I I could not for the life of me pinpoint the first time that I actually uh, read a comic. But I can pinpoint a few kind of key things that, that were instrumental to me falling in love with the characters in the medium. First of all, do you remember RCA used to have these things, Select Division uh, video discs? They had this big plastic sleeve. You had to flip it upside down halfway through. Yep. We had a Swamp Thing and Tootsie. We had a couple of those in my home, yeah. Uh, my dad loved that format, and he bought a like a store out when they were discontinued. And so we had like seven disc players and 400 discs and a display shelf from the store, which my mother no hated. No way, wow. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't realize that those were not super mainstream because they were such a big part of my childhood that I never realized how kind of flash in the pan that format was. And oftentimes I'll, I'll reference it to people and they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they'll be like, Laserdisc? And I'm like, no, it's a slightly different thing. Yeah, I, I even brought it up to my dad who bought it, and he's like, no, I don't remember that. I was like, you brought it home, you bought it, and you bought movies for it. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I actually have a hardcover book around here, and I cannot remember who it's by because it, it feels like it's almost an industrial textbook. But I have a, a book that is basically the history of that format. I'll, I'll have to DM you the details. Definitely, yeah, because I'm a, I'm a, you know, a dead media collector. I have VHS tapes in my office as we speak, so... Yeah, and that's I, I figured you would be into that. Uh, I should have had it on my desk instead of 10 feet away from <laughs> me and behind me. So on those video discs, the two things I distinctly remember watching that were comic-specific was, was the old animated Shazam shows. Oh. And the original, not like the 80s, but the 60s animated Spider-Man that's basically just panel-for-panel panel recreations of the, of the Stan and Steve stuff. That's really neat. Yeah, I love that. And so I, I used to watch those. Those made me really interested in those characters. And then I, like I said, I always had comics around me. And when I was getting to be 8, 10, somewhere in there, I remember a few a few specific books that I read to death. One of them was Captain America 350, which w- was the double-sized one where he 
fights a U.S. agent. Yeah, for the clashing on the cover. Yeah, and I had that too. <laughs> there was a two-parter, which was uh, part one was in Fantastic Four, part two was in The Incredible Hulk, and it was a Hulk thing fight, and it was uh, the gray Mister Fixit Hulk and the uh, the pineapple thing. <laughs> wow, that is a, just a moment in time, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, I the thing I remember about it is that as somebody who didn't read Marvel regularly, I read that. But I read the Fantastic Four issue, and I couldn't quite figure out why Hulk was gray. And you just kind of like, okay, whatever, it's a thing that happens. But then at the end of part one, Doctor Doom comes in with a green Hulk and sticks it on both of them. And, and you know, within like two pages, they tear it apart. It turns out it's a robot. But it's a great cliffhanger. <laughs> he knows how to make an entrance and bring the drama, man. Yeah, Doom, exactly. for sure. But yeah, I, I, those two in specific, I remember reading so many times that I haven't read them in at least 10 years, and I can still remember virtually every panel. And actually, I recently repurchased them on eBay, like they're, they're sitting right here, uh, because I wanted to, uh, to say that I owned them again, even though I've largely kind of gotten out of the single issue market. Now, did you at this time then, you know, a couple of years later, obviously, were you a devoted reader of wizard were you still like buying comics every week or how did that hobby develop for you there were two things that that happened first of all carnage happened and it was 1991 and i got really into carnage for whatever reason even though i wasn't a regular spider-man reader and like what i found is that i really liked the venom and carnage stuff and not much else of what was going on in the books at the time so I read, I, I owned and read a bunch of those. Uh, but my reading and rereading Carnage and then going to a comic shop to get the trade paperback collection put me in the right headspace so that when Superman was killed, that I, I went all in. I was actually not a big Superman fan, and I was just like, oh, it'll be interesting to see him die. But the books at that time were so damn good. Like the people who were on those books are all all-stars. And so I fell in love with the titles, and it was just – it was always the thing of like, well – I'll stick around for funeral. Well, I'll stick around for rain. Well, you know. And so I was a, I, I became a regular comics reader because I became a regular Superman reader, and that lasted all the way till '99. Wow. I probably had not seen an a, a Wizard magazine until the death of Superman. Had they had that special with the uh, the weird shiny cover? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we just covered that recently. That Dan penciled and it was inked incredibly badly. <laughs> but I remember reading that, and I'm like, I have an obsessive personality anyway, and so something like that was perfect for me because it, it played right into the thing that I was obsessed with at the moment, and it had all this trivia in it. Like I, that's where I learned pre and post crisis, and that's when I started really aggressively following Wizard. Is that I learned so much cool, useful information from this uh, Death of Superman special that I was just like, well, these guys know their shit. <laughs> And uh, pretty much had had read Wizard nonstop from, you know, 93 until the end. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people claim, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, Wizard, you know, people want it for the price guide. You know, that seemed to be like what they believed at the beginning. But I was like, no, I mean, for so many of us, it was literally our comics education. You were learning yeah. the history through it. Yeah, not just what was new and hot, which was also a majority of the magazine, but they would educate you so much. When I was there, one of the first issues I worked on was Wizard 2000. And so we had those little featurettes that went through the decades. And it was like... Again, as like a 19 year old who didn't know a lot about comics history and had really only come on board five, six years before, I wrote the page on the 50s or at least a, a chunk of it. And I learned about Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent 
because Wizard assigned me to tell other people about them. <laughs> it's your homework. <laughs> yeah. But I, I look at that and I'm just like, I guarantee there are other people who had roughly the same level of intellectual curiosity as me, where it's like, I'm super interested in what's going on right now, but not history. And who then learned that history from Wizard because like, why not? It's in front of me. I paid for it. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, when I was in high school, Kingdom Come came out. And uh, when the novelization of Kingdom Come came out, somehow or another, I got a hold of Elliot Magan. And like as a high school kid, I was the kind of guy who like, first of all, it was the Wild West of the Internet. This is like 1997. And so you could find anything if you were smart. So I like I, I interviewed Hurricane Carter, the guy from you know the Bob Dylan song and the yeah. Denzel Washington movie. I interviewed him basically by searching him on Excite.com and just calling him up. Uh, so this is the kind of kid I was. And so I called Elliot Mag and I was like, hey, do you want to talk about the Kingdom Come book for my high school newspaper? And he's like, sure. And so we uh, we did this interview and I actually won an award for it. I can't remember. It's the Empire State something because it was a New York State high school journalism award. And so in 99, when I was starting college, that award had just kind of come through and because I went to like a, a rich school district, they had SUPA classes, which is Syracuse University Project Advance. And if you wanted to pay like a couple of hundred bucks to take basically an advanced class, you could get like one college credit hour per year. And I killed off my 101 and 201 journalism classes that way by taking Project Advance classes all through high school. And so I started college and I started journalism at a 300 level class. And even though I was a freshman and not actually eligible to get credit for an internship, I was in a 300 level class where we were required to apply for one. And so I wrote off a letter and I included uh, the story that had won me this award talking to Elliot Magan, and I sent it off to Wizard. And when Wizard asked me to come in for an interview, I'm like, I don't care that I can't get credit. If Wizard wants me to do an interview, I'm going to do it. That's pretty fantastic, actually, to just, yeah, just think about it. It's like actually interviewing a comics writer just opens the door before you even work there. You're, you're already connecting with one of the greats. But did, he, did you, in your particular interview, give him the S with the exclamation point? I did, which is not a thing I could really get away with, like, nowadays if I was writing it at, you know, a real place. But as a high school paper, I just was able to tell my editor, like, no, he stylizes it like this. And she was like, okay, that's cool. I still have that clip because I keep literally everything. I have so many pounds of newsprint, and it does indeed have the S exclamation point. So when you arrived there, you're the wonderkind, obviously. Now, you're coming in as an intern. What type of grunt work did they have you do as an intern? Like, was it living up to an expectation you had in your head, arriving at the wizard offices? It was a very odd internship because I came at just the right moment. I showed up and the same day that I started my internship, two new staff writers had just started their jobs because Jim McLaughlin was moving to the West Coast and we needed people to fill his shoes, which were obviously significant. And so I shared a desk with Jim for like two days before he left the office. And the same days that I same day that I started, Chris Lawson and Mike Cotton both got hired. And as a result of all that, a lot of people like the staffers didn't realize I wasn't just another new hire. Like they didn't realize I was an intern. I very much got treated like a peer. So I the thing that I remember the most is that because it was pre, not it wasn't pre email, obviously, but it was at a time when everybody wasn't constantly on email. Wizard didn't have a viable website in any way. And so they had me call a bunch of people on my first day, basically just to introduce myself, say, hey, I'm Russ. I'm interning at Wizard for the next six months 
or whatever. So that way, if something happened and there was breaking news and we had to call them, there was no moment of doubt of whether we were who we said we were. Do you remember who was on that list? Like who you were making contact with? Uh, there was a there was a handful. I can't remember a lot of them. I do remember Dan Jurgens because, first of all, Death of Superman. So he was like my hero as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then secondly, uh, Wizard had said, oh, as long as you're on the phone with this guy, he's got this Titans Legion crossover. Why don't you try to get a few words for that? And so I ended up doing an interview with Dan Jurgens on like my first or second day at the magazine. And he and I got off on a long like chat, like digression, partly because I just talk a lot and partly because uh, we had a lot in common. And I just I remember that day. Uh, at the end of the day, Joe Yanarella came into the bullpen and said, hey, can I talk to you in my office? And it's about Jurgens. And I figured for sure that I had wasted this man's time and that he had like called up the editor to be like, what's, what's wrong with that kid? <laughs> it was exactly the opposite. He was like, I really like that kid. Have him, have him call me from now on when you can. So as an intern, I was getting like Aquaman and Thor stories that I had no real right to be writing because Jurgens liked me and they were like, yeah, why not? Those weren't super hot selling books. Nobody was going to fight me for them. <laughs> but yeah, that was one of the very first things that happened at Wizard was that I, I made friends with Dan Jurgens, And uh, to this day, 20 odd years later, we're still we're still close. My oldest son is named after him. Wow. This is like the fascinating thing. Yeah, because th- th- we've heard a similar story before with somebody connecting with Jeff Johns in a very similar way. So it's just like it was just like that moment. Like you said, right place, right time. We happen to, you know, be kindred souls here. Now we're friends. Now uh, it's a lifelong deal. Yeah. What did you feel like as you started getting into that then? Because it sounds like you were getting opportunities to write and things like that. What was the best perk of the job then as you as you got rolling there over those first few months? For me, the best perk of the job was just exactly what we were kind of talking about, which is getting to talk to these people, getting to talk to not just like the creators, but also even the wizard staff, because obviously as somebody who'd been reading for a long, long time, these guys were kind of characters to me too. And so I, I really, I enjoyed being a part of kind of the, the larger comics community community and being able to kind of embrace that. That was the biggest thing. I think the biggest surprise for me when I came on board was because at first they didn't have me doing a lot of grunt work. Eventually they moved me to grunt work because I was annoying. When I got bored, because here's the thing, I had been working as first a writer and then an editor of my high school and college papers, and they were weeklies. And so I got there and they would be like, "Okay, so here's what we're doing this month. Here are the two stories we're giving the intern. And I would knock them out in a day and then be sitting on AOL Instant Messenger talking to creators who I liked. And so eventually they figured out like, oh, no, he's he's like not he's not writing on a monthly schedule. And since they were like little 250 word stories, it's not like you can slow me down that much anyway. So they started finding like research and filing and all the like the things you think of as intern jobs for me. That's when I got to know Justin Acklin because he was running the archives at that point. And they would when I wasn't writing, they would send me up and be like, OK, just see if he needs anything. And so you, you were digging through back issues and helping sort and all that type of stuff then? Yeah, we had gotten to the point in by late 1999 where it was just totally out of control and the i remember the big directive that i was given was to go through this organize things by title and number and then only keep two and put the rest of the excess like on a table in the warehouse for people to just take home because there were so many books that like the dc office would send us a comp and then like garib's mom would send us a box and like (laughs) you ended up with like 20 copies of and not even like the books that you want 20 copies of not even speculator books just random like i remember i took home the whole miniseries this thing called vexed by uh mike mccone but it was like this 
comedy about a god of mischief who was getting divorced and his wife was getting the powers and the divorce. <laughs> and I still have it sitting around here somewhere because uh, the artists signed it for me at one of the first conventions I went to post wizard. But it was like we had probably at least five copies of every single issue of this book, which I guarantee sold 3000 copies. <laughs> yeah. Now, you said like some of the characters in the office who appeared in the magazine, you know, that you admired. Was there one in particular that was kind of like the hero? You're like, oh, you know, Pat McCallum or Brian Cunningham. Can't believe I'm shaking your hand. Like who, who came to mind for you as you walked in? You're like, oh, I got, I got to find this guy's office. Well, funny enough, it was McLaughlin who, as I said, we were ships that passed in the night. And he was so harried and so stressed that I, I got the impression at the time that he didn't especially like me. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't until years later when he was like, no, man, you were great. Um, when he was at Hero and I was at Newsarama or something. Because once we actually, like once he moved to the West, I don't think I saw him again until after, long after I was done at Wizard. But he was the guy who I was like the most excited to meet from the pages. And Cunningham definitely was on that list too, because Brian was, I mean, He'd been there more or less from the beginning. He was right. one of those dudes who you, you recognized from the various goofy photo shoots, like his watcher and all that. And and it's funny because Brian, years later, I went I was at New York Comic Con. It was my first year with Newsarama. So I was there with Newsarama and I covered a uh, a Grant Morrison spotlight panel which is like thankless coverage because you're just sitting there basically transcribing. But apparently whatever I did, Brian was like, I really like the way you covered that. Would you be interested in working at Wizard again? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I gave him my card. I was like, give me a call. Never heard back from him again. And so I figured he was just blowing smoke. And then I found out that he had been laid off like the Monday he got back from that show. And so the reason he didn't call me is not because he wasn't interested, but because he was not there anymore. And so it's, it's this weird thing where like the through line of me being kind of friendly with Brian Cunningham, we were never super close, but the through line of us being friendly and like generally appreciative of one another ran for the entire duration of my relationship with wizard including years later when i almost went back yeah that moment ah Oh, doors closed. Sorry. <laughs> he doesn't have the keys anymore to let you in. Now, this six month period, because is that how long just the that internship was? Is that the whole of your wizard run? That was basically the whole of my my wizard run as basically a permal answer, because very quickly, Joe Yanarella figured out he didn't realize at first that I wasn't getting credit. <laughs> And so he started throwing me extra work because he felt bad that I was basically working for this ridiculously small meal stipend in an expensive part of the state. Because Joe was a really stand-up guy, he was just like, okay, well, do you still want to be here even though you're not getting credit? And I said, hell yeah. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to make sure that you get a couple hundred bucks a month then and and like can at least eat, which I always joke that uh, the reason that I ate through the first month of my internship is that Russ Wooten always bought me stuff at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. We only hear good things about Russ. The other Russ. <laughs> but yeah, I wasn't, th- I wasn't there in the building for very long. Uh, I, I continued to get some freelance work, uh, mostly covering Jurgen stuff for a while after that. And I, I did, I got a lot of uh, the kind of work where I think they were, they were getting stuff to pinch hit in case developing stories didn't come in because i remember like six months after i was gone from the office getting like a feature that they had me write and it never saw the light of day and i i assumed even at the time i'm like okay so what happened was one of the big round tables that they do they didn't know for sure that the people were going to come through with the interview and so then okay well we'll have some backups in case it's interesting that it never saw pranks you think eventually they'd be short on something right I mean, you'd think, but the other thing is, like, when we did the 25th anniversary panel at New York Comic Con a couple of years ago, I remember talking to somebody who said, oh, yeah, we did a, like, a director's commentary track with Jeff Johns and Phil Jimenez for 
for Infinite Crisis, and not a word of it ever saw the light of day. Yeah, that was Ben Morse. He told us yes. all about that. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of those things where you're like, okay, so I don't feel nearly as bad about whatever dopey thing it was that I wrote that I still can't remember to this day. Not getting. I mean, first of all, they paid me for it, so who cares? <laughs> I always liked being in Wizard, but if if they're gonna buy something from me and then not use it, that's kind of their prerogative. I mean, is there one that did get printed that stands out to you that you like showed off to your comic book loving friends? You're like, by the way, guys, did you see this issue? One of the things that I always would show off to my friends is just the fact that even though I was an intern, they trusted me with like actually good interviews. I remember of the stories that I got published in the magazine, the first three people I talked to were Liefeld, Jurgens, and Mark Miller. Wow. Because the, the Superman turnover was happening while I was there. And so, like, I remember being in the office and getting a fax at, like, 5 o'clock on a Friday that, like, they had changed over all the, the creative teams, like, when, when they moved it to, like, Loeb and McGinnis and all them. And it was one of those, like, I called somebody to be like, is this, le- is this legit? And they were like, oh, shit, we thought everybody was gone home. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was the end of the day on a Friday, and they were trying to you caught dump him. garbage. So you yeah. got the scoop. Which, of course, would have mattered if it was the internet time. <laughs> but yeah, so stuff like that, where you're just like, yeah, I, I, I always enjoyed being a part of the comics community. And, and to this day, I'm still like, I still kind of pinch myself that it's like some of the people I talk to, some of the people I'm friends with. And, and certainly, like, Wizard was one of the first instances of that where I'm like, I have like a pile of my first issue. Um, because they had the, the galleys, basically. I can't remember what they called it. It was first something. There was like a sticker on it. It was like a first run that was like the test run to make sure that it wasn't all screwed up. And they used to leave just like all hundred of those or whatever on the table in the break room. And I remember I took like 10 of them home because I'm like, first of all, there's not a hundred people who want this. And second of all, I want one for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Liefeld, I'm curious to get your impression. We recently had a falling out with Rob, if you want to say we ever fell in, but it was precipitated by Chris Ward and James Walker, who kept kind of poking him after some, we just posted his rant against Wizard and his anger that was there. So I'm curious in you know this 99-2000 era, what was your take as you contacted Rob and what was he pushing at that time? I think it was a uh like a his return to image kind of thing okay so i can't remember what it was but it was definitely a like awesome slash it was like a creator own thing mm-hmm. i mean i remember liking rob in general and my my whole life i intellectually understand that rob rubs a lot of people the wrong way and that rob can be a jerk but i've never had a bad experience with him and i i do think that he genuinely loves comics and so I, I, it's one of those things where I'm like, one of these days, I'm sure I will be the object of his ire. And then maybe I'll have, <laughs> maybe I'll have some more to say. We but wear it like, as a badge of honor. <laughs> I mean, you're certainly not alone. And certainly I, I didn't know about your falling out with him. And I'm, I'm not saying like, well, I'm on his side of any potential argument. But, uh, but to me, like, I think that my only real impression of Rob that I remember from back then was I remember thinking like that he was really intense. Because Rob is the kind of guy like he's all you, if you watch his uh, his like Instagram videos where he's just like he's in like business meeting mode and he's talking really fast. That's just how he is all the time. Like he's all he always sounds like somebody who wants to sell you the best thing in the history of the world. <laughs> and so I remember just talking to him and being like a 19 year old kid and being like, man, that dude's a lot. 
<laughs> and not necessarily in a bad way, just in the like objectively, he's a lot. Um, uh, that's the the big thing I remember taking away from from back then. And again, like the nice thing about being the low man on the totem pole for basically the whole time that I was there is that I was spared most of the drama. The exception being uh, I was there when Black Bull launched. Yeah, talk to us about that, because for those who don't know, this was Wizard, or, I mean, Wizard, not uh, officially, I guess, it was Garib Sheamus's comic book line that he was launching and heavily promoting in dual-page ads all throughout Wizard. So what can you tell us about this launch of Black Bull Comics? First of all, I'm sure people who had more seniority than me knew that it was coming. But for those of us, like me, Mike, and Chris, who, as I said, were really new, and they were staff writers, and I was an intern, but we were all, like, we weren't even in the main bullpen. We were in, like, a satellite out by where, like, Lars Pearson and Andrew Cardone and Russ Wooten were. And so they came in and basically handed us a press release, and we're like, so you guys know this is happening. So Mark and Jimmy and Amanda and Joe Casada were all there for the announcement. I can't even remember if Joe actually had anything at Black Bull or if he was just there because Jimmy was there and why not stop in and see the wizard guys? Because <laughs> they're always together, yeah. <laughs> and certainly back then they were. But so like they brought all these people in who are really cool people who you admire and they were just like, yep, this is the thing that's going to happen. And at the time, immediately, everybody in the room was just like, oh, this is going to make our lives so much harder because I, I remember one of the things, uh, Kia Asamiya had a Batman hardcover that was coming out at the time. And I remember the day, I might be misremembering, it might not be the day, but certainly the reasoning for it was that Black Bolt was announced. But in my memory, the day that it was that Black Bolt was announced, uh, we had an exclusive, we were supposed to debut the, like, the Batmobile design. And we got, a, like, a thing from DC that basically said, as long as Scarab is running a competing publisher, we can't give you exclusive content to our pre-published material. Wow. And so it immediate, like it was immediate that it was just like, oh, this is a thing. Uh, and, and really, it never got much worse than that, as far as I can recall. And again, I wasn't there for, for too, too long after that happened. But I do remember there was a lot of tension among the kind of people who were on the lower end of the totem pole where we were just like, we don't have the relationships with people to make this better. You know, like if, if you're if you're Brian or if you're Pat or if you're Jim, pe people are going to be like, what the hell are you doing? And they could smooth it over because like they have relationships with people. Mm hmm. Those of us who had only been there for a short period of time were just like, oh, my God, this is a gigantic headache. And that's not to say that I necessarily thought that he shouldn't be doing what he wanted to do and that, you know, the Black Bull books were anything but like they were fine. They were entertaining. But uh, I, that, the big thing I remember was just they told us very late in the game and then they brought in people that day for like a press conference thing. And I remember the press conference being at Wizard and like that we had a couple of other outlets, I think mostly just local news or something. But like we had a couple of New York outlets like in the Wizard offices as he was announcing this non-Wizard project. And then he, he kept trying to uh, tell publishers like, no, it's not Wizard. It's going to be fine. But meanwhile, as you said, the first issue, which was either Wizard 2000 or Wizard number 100, there was like a series of sequential like yeah. two page spreads for each book that were like ads, not stories. And so as much as he told people like, no, it's not wizard. It's not, a, it's not a big deal. Nobody was buying that. And then literally <laughs> nobody was buying that. Yeah. <laughs> nobody was interested in Black Bull comics. I, I can't imagine how many were in the warehouse. The biggest memory that I have of Black Bull actually was, uh, I want to say it was again, that it was that first day. It might've been another time shortly thereafter when Jimmy and Joe came. But I remember uh, Jimmy and Joe were hanging out and it wasn't even in the real bullpen. It was in our little corner. And so they were talking to basically a bunch of nobodies. 
but we were shooting the breeze about stuff. And uh, as I recall, Marvel Knights had just happened. And uh, I remember telling them about, or maybe it was not me, maybe it was Lawson or Cotton, but somebody told them, oh yeah, there's a Marvel Knights Punisher toy with a little onk thing on his forehead and everything at KB. And they were like, no shit. Like nobody had told them that they were that they were merchandising the Marvel Knights line for consumer products. And so like when we went to the mall to get lunch, I remember buying Jimmy Palmiotti a Marvel Marvel Knights Punisher like 12 inch toy because I was just like, holy shit, we we broke the news to these guys who really should have done it before us. It's going to be funny if I buy this. <laughs> that's pretty great wow that's interesting and i actually i don't even remember that i was in kb quite a bit that's so interesting they, i mean obviously with the the ghost punisher as a property was pretty short-lived so yeah. <laughs> oh this is great so the question i have is you you mentioned briefly about you know that wizard at the time really didn't have an internet presence to speak of but you were there you know again during this period where the internet is starting to become a thing and eventually went on to be very involved in internet you know pop culture sites so what did you see in those early days with wizard and as you moved on how did you see them competing or not competing in that space were you very involved with that i i wasn't but i tried to be numerous times because i was of the, the opinion that we needed to be more in that space. And like, it's easy to say that now, 20 years later and be like, well, of course I was right. But I was also 19 and I knew that I got, like I checked CBR several times a day. And at one point, and I, again, I don't know if this ever saw print or not, but if it did, like God help us because it was a terrible idea. At one point, uh, there was a concession made where somebody told me, okay, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna have like a sidebar where we talk about cool websites and they asked me to write up CBR. And I'm just like, you you literally want me to write a thing for the magazine directing people to our direct competition who can publish 60 more times a month than we do. <laughs> and, and I remember writing up a little blurb. I don't have any idea what I said. And I don't think that it ever got printed because I think somebody thought better of it. Well, now there was a full internet issue because we had Buddy Scalera. He, we've had him on, and there was a full internet issue just around this time period, you know, 2000, 2001, somewhere in that, where they literally did that. They had like a couple pages, just like go to this website, go to this website. So in some form or another, they did eventually do that. I just remember thinking as I was writing whatever little piece I wrote, I'm like, this is us writing a story that's making ourselves obsolete. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and so like yeah i i very much as somebody who was younger and as somebody who spent a lot of my time on the internet i very much advocated like that we should be doing more on the internet but uh as much as everybody there was really receptive to my feedback i had no pull whatsoever <laughs> and yeah i will say one thing that we haven't mentioned that i should mention because it kind of ties into the idea of people being receptive to me but i but me having no power i mentioned joe yanarella and Aside from the, the time that he scared me by telling me he wanted to talk to me about Jurgens, he's the best editor that I've ever had in my life. And I always tell people, I am, I'm a natural writer. Maybe you do or don't like what I, like my style or my voice or whatever, but most editors that I've worked with have really liked my stuff, just without much polish. Joe did not, largely because I wasn't anything remotely close to the wizard voice because I was so like stilted from a rich kid's high school paper. <laughs> I remember writing a story about a, a Dan Jurgen story where Thor and the recorder and Thanos were having like a three-way showdown. 
And I don't remember what the story was, but I do remember the lead was what do you get when dot, dot, dot. And I remember getting a printed copy of my story back to me with what do you crossed out in red and Wadia, W-H-A-D-D-Y-A, written in. <laughs> that is the wizard voice. Huh? Yes. Uh, and but but it was just one of those things like I, I don't know that I've ever had another editor who openly did not like my writing. But Joe was never an asshole about not liking my writing. He just he made me much better and he made me a lot more versatile because even though really my natural voice is closer to what we do at comic book and closer to what we've done at pretty much every other job I've ever had, the versatility that he gave me by forcing me to be able to be wizard style has been really invaluable. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, and he has come up in pretty much every interview. He's this like unsung hero behind the scenes that nobody knows. Although I was just looking at an issue uh, from around your era and I saw a picture of him and I was like, he was kind of a, he was a younger guy. I was imagining like this Ed Asner, Lou Grant, <laughs> you know, old man. It was like, ah, you kids, let me show you how to write for a magazine. This is how we do it. But, but he seems like, you know, he's a pretty young, cool guy. He just knew what he was doing and, and kept everybody in line. I think he, uh, and again, I can't speak to this very much because I didn't know him personally very well, but I think that he was one of the more conventionally cool guys on staff. I think that because I know he's in sports now, like he's in sports media now, and I think he came from sports media or something like that. I think they, they basically hired somebody who was cooler than the rest <laughs> of us to uh, to wrangle the nerds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's the impression I got anyway. And I could be completely wrong because, again, I wasn't there for a super long time. But I just I, I that's the way that I've always viewed Joe's role. OK, well, that's interesting. Now, um, just real quick now. So obviously we had, we had the Black Bull thing happening and Garib is a another figure, you know, of the, the magazine, you know, the figure. So the question comes to you then in your six months there your thoughts on garib Sheamus, cool or fool uh i i would lean towards cool but again i was 19 and he was garib Sheamus, and so <laughs> he was like we only encountered each other a small handful of times uh, i think it's funny when i listened to your conversation with zach he obviously came right around the same time as me and stayed for much much longer but when he said like that he never saw garib I did see Garib, and I think part of the reason is because as an intern, they would send me up to deal with things like subscription issues. And so I would go to like the office where his secretary was and where the money stuff was being done. And so if he was there, we would pass each other in the hallway because I was up in a place where most of the staff doesn't go. What did Garib smell like? Can you answer that question? <laughs> what was his cologne? <laughs> I can't remember. Honestly, the, the whole office always struck me. Like the office smelled to me like a blockbuster like it was one of those it was yeah it, that really institutional smell like uh it, we got the carpets cleaned a lot um <laughs> it's funny the things that i do and don't remember from wizard because i can't clearly picture our little corner where our desks was but i can very clearly picture like the entire setting when i was being interviewed for the internship because we were sitting in the like the lobby and i remember the arcade cabinet that was there and uh, I remember it like playing the whole time. Like the, it was some kind of fighting game, but I just remember it pl like the the nobody was playing it, so the audio was like playing on a loop while I was doing this interview that was uh, <laughs> determining the future of my career. But it, like I said, the things that I do and don't remember are very odd. I remember also after I was done with my internship, and basically after I I think I had stopped getting freelance work at this point, but I was like going down to New York for something, and so I stopped off at the office. 
just to say hi to like the handful of people who I still stayed in touch with. And it's like, I can remember some of the weird things that had changed in terms of just layout and stuff like that. Zach and Acklin were doing a spectacular job making uh, the archives and the warehouse less chaotic <laughs> to the point where like, I remember that being distinctly improved in the like six months between the last time I was in the office and the next time I came to visit. Cleaning stuff up over there. Acklin and out. And I have this very clear image in my head that I never actually saw. The, you remember, uh, I think it was Zach, you know, talked to you on your show about the time that everything at, at Toy Fair got covered in tinfoil? Yes. <laughs> there was a, a similar thing that Toy Fair supposedly did to, to the wizard people where they wrapped, and not everything, but just the bullpen, like the cube itself, in plastic wrap. <laughs> and... The visual of that was so instantly memorable. I can still picture it, even though I did not see it. Because the <laughs> first day that I was in the bullpen, somebody told me that story. And I just remember like looking at the bullpen for the first time and then immediately thinking, like, oh, that's what that would look like if it was covered in plastic. <laughs> so, like you say, the, the six-month period, as you left, did you end up, I mean, aside from, you know, several copies of your first printed work and everything, what was a memento or anything you got to keep from that time that you might still have in your collection? I have two VHS tapes that came from Wizard. One of them I was allowed to take. The other one I accidentally stole. <laughs> the, the one that I accidentally stole was uh, the Gen 13 movie. Oh, wow. Which I had taken out of the archives, and I thought I had returned. And then, like, literally two years later, I found it in a box somewhere. And I, like, called somebody or sent somebody a message, and they were just like, dude, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I have that is, like, a much more treasured possession and that I took on purpose and that I was allowed to take was an SVHS of, I think it was Pat McCallum, doing essentially a, a, a twisted toy fair kind of bit where we used it for the scavenger hunt one year. Cause here's the thing. When, when we did the scavenger hunt, at least the year that I was there, when we did the scavenger hunt, they sent staff out to essentially pilot it. They would send us out into our area and just be like, Hey, are these things unreasonable asks? Is this a thing that we're going to be able to get people to get, you know? And one of the things that we had to do that year was to play this tape and we couldn't go home and we couldn't play it at the office. So we had to basically convince somebody, either somebody at a private residence or a business, to let us use their VCR. <laughs> and I remember we were in the mall for some other part of the, the scavenger hunt. And we went to Radio Shack and the folks at Radio Shack were like, yeah, sure, of course, no problem. And then uh, like he comes up and he says some stuff and he gives you a phone number that you've got to call to get your next step on the, the thing. And then he starts cursing. And the people at Radio Shack could not pull it out fast enough. And, started <laughs> and I have that tape, <laughs> which I, I thought for a long time that it, I didn't realize that it was Pat. I thought it was like Senreich or some of the people who had done uh, like the, the twisted stuff. And so when I first found it again in my collection, I like digitized it and showed it to Matt. I was just like, holy shit, like this is you playing with toys 20 years ago. And he's like, that's not me, but that's Pat's office. Holy shit, I'm being brought back in time. And I'm sorry I'm cursing a lot. This is just how I talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was on a show recently uh, where they, they never corrected me, but when they when they bleeped me, they used R2-D2 noises. Uh -oh. <laughs> so 
I, it took me like four times through before I finally, re- oh, it's because I swore. Uh, I thought it was like something wrong with the audio. <laughs> uh, I thought it was an actual glitch. <laughs> yeah, because it, well, it was like, boom. But yeah, so I, I remember I have that tape, which I kept and intentionally kept and meant to keep and was told I could. Uh, because, of course, who except the intern wanted a three minute SVHS from the scavenger hunt? Like <laughs> nobody else cared. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing what you were there for in just a six-month period, like how much you were able to participate in. When I actually like sit down and tell all these stories, it's like, man, a lot was going on. Uh, I also remember that like a lot of people didn't know me because, again, like I was an intern and also I started the same day as two other new guys. And so like there was a lot of kind of sensory <laughs> input for people. And so I remember that there was a bunch of people who didn't know me or, or whatever. And I made a good impression during that like faux scavenger hunt because one of the things that we had to do was take a picture in a public restroom wearing nothing but your underwear and shoes. And <laughs> nobody on the team wanted to do that for obvious reasons. And I was just like, heck with it. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and and that minor silly thing, like there was at least two people who talked to me more and seemed to like me better after I took one for the team. Like it really was like I was just another face in the crowd. And then once I did something like that, they were just like, hey, he's all right. So as you have got on in your career beyond, you know, this this brief moment in time at Wizard, obviously you've stayed basically in the same circles of what, you know, the the Wizard magazine, the type of people and the talent it was attracting. And now you've gone out onto the online sources for all of that. So do you stay in contact quite a bit with the with the Wizard cohorts and people that came from there? Yes and no. There's a lot of people who I'm still friends with or at least friendly with. Uh, and we'll talk whenever we bump into each other. Uh, there's nobody who I like call on the regular, but you know I maintain a really good relationship with Russ Wooten and with Mel Kalo and uh, Zago. Zach and I probably talk the most, and we didn't know each other hardly at all when we were at Wizard. It's funny because he mentioned that photo of us, which is it was in either Wizard 2000 or 100 because it was part of the big like the great comic debates story they did, which it's funny. Uh, he was talking about it and he couldn't remember what it tied to. The reason I remember exactly what it tied to is because we were hitting each other with comics. Like he said, I was hitting him with a copy of Watchmen and he was hitting me with a copy of Dark Knight because there was a subsection in that story about which one is better. Oh, that's awesome. We'll scan it and let people have a look. So I st- I, it's funny. I talked to him probably more than just about anybody else. Because his role at Diamond Select, like he does all this publicity stuff, and he's constantly reaching out to reporters. And same, same thing with Mel when he was at Boom for a long time. It's like I would constantly talk to Mel because if you're getting emails four times a week from a guy who you've known for years, of course you're going to respond. And that's kind of how it is with Zach. Like, and I'm, I'm because our site is so big. I, I think that I'm one of his go-to's when he has something really cool to break. He's like, hey, we're going to do this at twelve. If I give you a heads up, do you want to do it at 1145 so that you get the first little bump of traffic and you can send people our way? But there are a bunch of people who I stay in touch with and who I, like I said, I'm friendly with. Whenever New York Comic Con actually happens and we physically go to New York, Matt and Mel always have a party. Like they'll they'll take out like a, a room in some bar. And uh, I, I've been going there the last three years because uh, that's like, why would you not if you had the opportunity? Well, that's great. No, that's that's awesome. Now, speaking of your, your current work, so why don't you tell the people uh, where they can find your writing these days and how they can contact you online? 
Yeah, I'm at comicbook.com. I'm exclusive there. CBS owns it. And so just comicbook.com. You can find me on Twitter at Russ Burlingame, R-U-S-S-B-U-R-L-I-N-G-A-M-E. The one thing I do that is not part of my exclusivity deal with CBS is that I'm currently working on a book, and it's it's an oral history of the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie. Yes. Now, this this is what we got to get into here. So for those of you who have no interest, you got the main <laughs> meat of this discussion. This is the bonus episode here. Okay, so for those who don't know, Josie and the Pussycats started as an Archie comic, then became a cartoon, and many years later, 2001 became a subversively comedic live-action film that was not a hit at the box office. I personally was hooked from the moment I saw the trailer and I heard the song Three Small Words. Words. I bought the soundtrack, I went to the theater, I have for many years owned the VHS, the DVD, even the edited family-friendly cut, and the novelization. Plus, I recently got some pieces of the actual film from Russ uh, during a Twitter livestream Q&A that he was doing with the writer-directors of that film. So yeah, tell us about your book project that is being written basically in preparation for the 20th anniversary next year, is that yeah, right? it's about six months from now. And it's funny, I had wanted to do a book about this movie because first of all i love the movie but also the idea that joe's and the pussycats is criminally underrated is now kind of accepted gospel on film twitter mm -hmm. but first of all for a long time it wasn't that way and secondly it's become this cult classic but cult classics as an idea is really gendered like it takes fight club three months to be a cult classic it takes josie 15 years and right around the time that i realized it wasn't just me who really dug this movie and that there was a, a cult kind of springing up I started thinking, like, what if I could get some of these people to talk to me and I could do a book on it? And my my whole thinking has always been talk about the production, talk about the reception, and then track the kind of trajectory of going from a box office flop to a cult classic. And so a big chunk of the book is talking to fans, which is why even though I don't have a ton of it done yet, I'm out here talking about it because when you're talking to fans a lot, inevitably somebody's going to tweet, hey, somebody's doing a book about my favorite movie. That's so cool. And I wanted it to be me who at least like told the world that I was doing it. But yeah, I like five years ago, I started toying with the idea and then Mondo did a vinyl release of the soundtrack. Did you get to go to that event? I didn't. I really wish that. I the big thing is I was pretty broke and I had talked to my wife and I'm like, if the tickets are still available, you know, when I get paid, I'm going to buy a flight and I'm going to go. And they sold out before I got paid again. So just the choice was made for me. But yeah, they, they put together that whole event, which was this really cool, like it was a Q&A with the filmmakers and a bunch of the cast showed up and the folks behind the soundtrack, which is people like Letters to Cleo's K. Hanley and Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne came and performed the soundtrack front to back. And for a lot of the stuff, it was the first time it had ever been done live. I know. And, and after that happened, I was like, they must be releasing a Blu-ray and that's all going to be a special feature and nothing. Yeah, no. Well, I was talking to, to Mo from Mondo for the book, and one of the things he said is every time they say, like, oh, yeah, we got plans, it doesn't materialize. Because, mm -hmm. like, the, the Mondo people had to try twice to get the rights for the vinyl reissue because when he first reached out to them, they were like, oh, no, we're going to do it ourselves. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Blu-ray thing is something that's, like, being talked about but not actually moving forward. It's funny. Uh, there was a, a podcast, a short-form podcast called Josie and the Podcats. <laughs> uh, by uh, Maria Lewis, who's a, a science fiction author and reporter. And it's really good. And it was the second of the second of two things that delayed my book, not because it's her fault, but because I didn't want to crowd people. Because when the, the Mondo thing first came out, it said, hey, one of the writers from Consequence of Sound is going to have a an oral history in the liner notes. 
And I was like, well, somebody else already did what I want to do. Awesome. Uh, and then you get it, and it is technically an oral history, but it's like four pages long. Yeah, yeah, not not quite what we're looking for. Right, right. And again, like no disrespect whatsoever to that person who did a great interview, but like it's it's not what I expect when I yeah, hear oral talking history. comprehensive. Yeah, and and same thing with Maria's uh, podcast. It was terrific, but because she did like dozens of hours of interviews, and most of it never saw the light of day because she was cutting it down to a format that she thought was going to work. And so it was like she had six hour-long episodes and then six supplemental episodes that looked into like some of the nuts and bolts. Listened to the show, enjoyed the heck out of the show, and then I reached out to her and her producer right after it was over, and I was like, okay, so you've done written versions of the episodes for the hearing impaired. Is that all, or are you going to are you intending to write a book with some of the other stuff that you've done? And they said no. And I said, OK, cool, I'm, I'm going to do a book, but I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. My feeling is that like there are a bunch of people who are going to be really interested in this book. But I also feel like it's a super niche fandom. You don't want like there's no good reason to be stepping on each other as you do it. <laughs> right. So it's funny that every time I've gotten started over the last few years, somebody else would be like, hey, I'm doing a thing. And so I just backed off and let them do their thing and then came back to it when I had time. Because I'm exclusive, I have there's like a whole process I have to go through. I have to submit stuff to HR to get approved to do anything that's not for comic book or CBS. And so I finally heard back from them and got approval officially just about two days before I tweeted it on. I put the announcement out on Twitter. And ironically, uh, I was waiting on CBS to make the announcement and to start working on the book. Um, the announcement that I made was on the 50th anniversary of when CBS first aired the animated series. <laughs> wow serendipity and what about that because it seems like also your wizard connections help you here because seth green obviously a big part of that movie as a as a member of du jour and you know matt i assume so is that, is that a connection for you You're gonna get that interview i have a lot of people in this film who are like friends of friends and and so like one of my very best friends produced a documentary that rosario was in a couple of years ago and so he's like, well, I have her phone number if you can't get a hold of her. And so there's little things like that where it's like, I know that I have back doors to get to people. I'm trying to do it the right way first. And then if I don't hear from people, I'm just going to be like, hey, can you put in a good word for me? Like, just tell them you don't even have to put me on the phone. Just tell them like your agent has my information. I know that Donald Faison is aware of the project because uh, he has a, a podcast. He and Zach Braff have a Scrubs podcast. And uh, Matt Westfallen a friend of mine from Twitter was on there as a guest recently. And he like plugged the book for me <laughs> while he was on Donald's podcast. That's fantastic. He's like, I'm sure Russell want to talk to you. And Faison was like, oh, I'll keep an eye out for that. Speaking of Twitter, I have I have a fun question for you, and I'm sure you're very aware of this account, but there is a person on Twitter that we follow because his account name is Amalgam Comics. So oh, we're yeah. like super excited. He's going to post stuff about Amalgam. All he posts about is Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> yeah. Amalgam is like his favorite thing ever, but the when he became kind of visible on Twitter was when he did... Josie Quest, which is, you know, hashtag Josie Quest. He watched the film every day for a year and tweeted about it every day. And lost his mind in the process. <laughs> yeah, more or less, I think that's what everybody does when they do any of those, like, not not specific to Josie. Whenever you do one of those, they're uh, year-long things. Yeah. 
Well, and it's certainly, especially that movie, with so much literal subliminal messaging and all that stuff that's going on in there, maybe that does affect you with uh, that frequent exposure over that period of time. Well, it's funny. One of the things I want to do is I want to talk to the sound designer because in the commentary track for the film, they say that the sound design people really did put in a bunch of not real subliminal messages, but they, they did a lot of cool sound design stuff that played into the subliminal message theme. And the filmmakers were like, they never explained it to me. And I always said, like, I'm going to need to know this for the commentary. And now it's the commentary and I don't know. <laughs> and so one, one of the things I definitely want to do is talk to him about uh, the, the sound design and how the, the subliminal stuff played into the actual movie's real sound design. Yeah, that's what I'm curious to know. I mean, I, my main question is, are you going to be able to find the guy who recorded and sang the DuJour songs? Because it was like one guy, right? I think so. And I gotta, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to find all of the people on the musical side. I'm casting the broadest possible net. Like, I, I really, because of the fact that Maria did such a great job talking to Harry and Deb and Rachel for the podcast, one of the things, like, the justification for doing a book like this is talking to a bunch of other people that she either didn't talk to or if she did talk to them, it didn't make it to the show. Right, yeah. And so I'm casting a pretty wide net, and I'm trying very hard to do that. I'm also trying to talk to Before Four, which is this, like, teeny bopper band. Oh, yeah, they played the filming, right? Like, they, they were the ones that brought, really, everybody to the, the final scene. Yeah, when they needed to fill the stadium in Vancouver, the way they did it was by offering people a free concert by this popular boy band at the time. And of course, so you, they didn't get brought out until after everybody was done filming, basically. And so you have this group that you can watch in the in the film that they, depending on the shot, they can be really surly because at a certain point they realize like, oh, I committed to being here for hours <laughs> before the band shows up. And so I, I wanted to kind of talk to those guys, if, if at all possible, too, just because that's the kind of thing where it's like nobody's ever going to try to talked to before exactly <laughs> so like I'm, I'm really i'm casting the widest possible net and talking to as many people as will talk to me and again a, a big chunk of the book is just talking to people who love the movie because again part of it is tracking this kind of 10 to 15 year journey of it going yeah. from box office disappointment to being like a, a cult classic on the internet well yeah that's why i find it so funny like i said like i have that family edit and i just think it's so funny is that's what happened it's like it bombed as like trying to sell it to teens yeah so let's try to sell it to young girls and you know we we produced you know barbie dolls we produced all this like a tie-in merchandise and yet you know nobody bit unfortunately yeah, it's funny in the course of my research I, I found this old blog post it's archived now i can't even remember how i stumbled across it but i found this old blog post from the archie website where they were basically like responding to somebody's letter and being like, hey, don't worry. I know it's PG-13. It's really not dirty or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I mentioned that to Harry and Deb, they were like, I feel like that's the kind of thing that you publish when you're trying to promote the family edit on VHS. <laughs> For sure. And that's what I was really surprised because I went back looking, trying to find like, surely Archie Comics would have done a comic book adaptation of the movie. It just didn't seem like that was the case. Like you just, you know, granted, it's a hard movie to adapt, you know, that format maybe. But yeah, I was just like, huh, surprising. It's funny to me because they did run ads, a lot of ads over a sustained period of time in the run up to the movie. 
I know that the the filmmakers have said the closest thing they had to a real premiere party was that event in L.A. a couple of years ago, because by the time the movie premiered, they already had seen numbers that said it was tracking poorly and it was going to be a bomb. And so I'm wondering if for the same reason that they didn't really get a chance to celebrate at the premiere is why they didn't get a comics adaptation. Like maybe people basically told Archie, like, yeah, this is not this is not going to be worth the money to adapt it because the movie's not going to do anything. Yeah. And I mean, like Universal, you know, we deal in old magazines here. Scout. I mean, Universal promoted him cover of Entertainment Weekly, cover of TV Guide. Yeah. I mean, like they, they got like major, major publicity. And it just it's so amazing that that doesn't pay off somehow. In, in ticket sales it was a really weird movie in the sense that the promotion wasn't great but it was bountiful like a lot of people will be like oh the trailer didn't really tell you what the movie's about and blah 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 blah, blah. it's like that's definitely true but like when you look at a lot of cult classic movies they just got no promotion at all like mm-hmm. universal didn't do anything for mall rats outside of like advertising in comics whereas like when you look at universal's push for josie it was clear they made the effort even if a lot of their effort was misdirected. One of the quotes that comes up over and over again when you're talking to people is Universal thought they were making a Nickelodeon movie and they were making an MTV movie. And so I think a lot of it is they did a lot of publicity, but they didn't know what they were actually publicizing. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, it's weird when you have an actual MTV host in your movie <laughs> yeah. and you don't know what you're making. <laughs> Yeah, and that was that was one of the best bits too. Is is like the running joke of Carson Daly. But lost to time, and nobody knows he was dating Tara Reid at the time. Yeah, exactly. You know? Like no, nowadays, everybody's like, huh? huh? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because there is a lot of stuff in the movie that really holds up well uh, because it's talking about like the hyper commercialism in our culture and and like people mm-hmm. kind of being brainwashed to follow trends and things like this. And then there's the other aspect of the movie which is super super specific to the moment in time that it was being made and i think part of the reason that it does so much better now than it did when it was in theaters is that the stuff that was specific to the moment it's being made it's like making fun of the stuff that people held dear at that time right and now like it's making fun of it but it's making fun of it in a good-natured way it's not a mean movie at all And so I think that at the time you were like, they're making fun of my stuff. And now you look back at it and you're like, oh, man, remember when our biggest problem was insert thing from the 90s? Well, it's, it's like the filmmakers were in attitude related to the goth girl at the record store. How much time do you have? You know, like they're just like poking fun at current pop culture. Yeah. And meanwhile, everybody yeah. they're trying to sell the movie to are the, the three girls who hate Josie and the Pussycats in the movie that they're mocking. Which yeah. I really want to find at least one of those girls and talk to them because I my understanding from like talking to Deb and Harry and listening to the commentary track and stuff is that they had much more to do in the first cut of the movie, but that they tested so badly. People hated them that they got basically slashed. And it's just uh. like, you feel bad for because like the, they weren't doing a bad job. They were supposed to be annoying. Exactly. But they were so annoying that the test audiences hit the dial and it's like, oh, these guys are basically cut out of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where I, I'm very looking forward to the book, yeah, to find out what the deleted scenes were, what other concepts, you know, didn't ultimately make it. I know I asked a few questions to Deb and Harry during the during the Q&A on Twitter, but I didn't get too much. You know, I think they were like, ah, oh, there wasn't that much. We used most of it. But so what is your projected date, your hope that you will be releasing this next year, I'm assuming? My plan is to be able to deliver the ebooks on april 11th for the 20th anniversary of the theatrical release oh awesome i'm 
not super far into my interviews yet, but the nice thing about an oral history is that as long as you have the scaffolding in place, it doesn't take as long as like actually writing a book because mm-hmm. you're basically editing a podcast, but you know, much longer. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I basically resigned myself pretty quickly to like, okay, so I'll crowdfund it and that way I can pay to transcribe the interviews and I can pay for a, a limited print run for the people who really want a physical book. I, I'm very much of the mindset that because I love this movie and I, I I think it deserves more appreciation, that I'm like, if I end up breaking even and not pocketing anything, that's fine. Because like, there'll be this book in the universe that I'm associated with promoting this thing that I love. And yeah, again, hopefully all the discussion leads to uh, more of a light being shed on it, but also just more the people that have power and creative input into getting something, you know, more produced out of that. That would be yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So. In, a, in a perfect world, I would love to see a Blu-ray for the 20th anniversary. And I don't think that this book is going to nudge that, but I do <laughs> think that the book plus the Mondo thing, plus the chatter on line plus the you know the la times article that ran a few years like i do think that you can you can eventually just kind of nickel and dime away at these people and be like look nobody's shutting up yet you know it's the snyder cut thing it's like no no one rando on twitter made that happen but the fact that it became increasingly clear to them this is never going to stop (laughs) is what really made them think maybe we can make money off this i mean i i applaud you for this and i'm I'm definitely gunning for you i'll be there for the financial support for the crowdfunding and all that is that already up no, I've made essentially a deal with myself that before I ask anybody for money, there are certain interviews that I need to have done because I like I don't think that I can deliver a version of this book that I'm proud of without certain interviews. And so until I've completed all of those, I'm not going to start anything about the crowd. That's fair. Well, if I run into Parker Posey or Alan Cumming, I will send them your way. Not too long ago, I was uh, there, there, there was a show on USA that Rosario Dawson and Alan Cumming were in. And while he was doing press for something he Josie came up and he just lit right up and he's like that that was so much fun and it was a great movie and I'm really glad that people are starting to find it again and like I'm doing something with Rosario for the first time in 20 years and it's just like I'm gonna send a link to this video to his people if they don't get back to me (laughs) and just be like no he wants to talk about this please yeah Well, Russ, this really was a pleasure. Thank you so much for the stories, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Wizard Files. We have many more to come, but if you yourself are a wizard staffer with stories to tell, why not reach out to us and let us know you're available? Yes, you can find Wizards on Twitter, at Wizards Comics, on Instagram, at Wizards underscore Comics. Of course, you can also reach out to us via email, if you prefer, at WizardsComicsPod at gmail. We'll get it all scheduled. People want to hear from you. You've lived an exciting life that many of us dreamed of. And until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.